you so much. My name is Kevin Rulo. I'm, I'm an assistant professor in the English department here at Catholic University. Um, I direct our writing programs. I study modernism. Uh, I do have a secondary interest in Girard and uh, have published on Girard and uh, Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. Um, so uh, thank you all for being here. It's great to be here uh, and great to be with these three wonderful panelists. Uh, what we're going to do is I'll do some introductions. We'll, we will hear from the panelists individually. Then we'll have some conversation amongst the, the panel. And then we will open it up to all of you uh, for questions and discussion as well. Okay. Uh, so to begin. One of the refreshing aspects of Girard's work, and one which distinguishes him from many other literary and critical theorists, is the primacy that Girard ascribes to literature. If theory can at times see literature as mere material for doing theory, Girard's critical praxis reverses this relation. For Girard, literature is itself inherently theoretical. As Robert Duran puts it, quote, what Girard offers us is not a theory of literature or a theory that makes use of literature for some other end, but literature as theory, unquote. In this way, Girard avoids the mimetic rivalry that has at times existed between theorists and writers, a fact which, which may make him more amenable to novelists than say one like Roland Barthes pronouncing death upon the author. Indeed, Girard's work has been a bolstering heuristic for not a few authors since the publication of Deceit, Desire, and the Novel in 1961. Uh, examples of writers influenced by Girard include Milan Kundera, Philippe Moray, and Jonathan Littell, among others. After his death in, in 2015, Girard continues to engage new voices in literature. And we are fortunate to have three compelling such voices with us here today as we explore the question of what it means to write after and with Girard in, in our contemporary moment. A. Natasha, Natasha Zukovsky, Zukovsky, sorry holds a BA in English from the University of Virginia and an MBA from New York University's Stern School of Business. She spent five years in the art world working at the Philadelphia Museum of Art and the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. After business school, she began a career in management consulting, joining Accenture Strategy in 2014. Her debut novel, The Portrait of a Mirror, was published by the Overlook Press in 2021. The novel was reviewed at length in Coverture and Genealogies of Modernity. It has appeared on most anticipated lists in The Millions, Lit Hub, Frolic, She Knows, She Reads, Veranda Magazine, and Settle on Books. The novel was also a vulture notable new release. Brandon Taylor is the author of the critically acclaimed novels The Late Americans and Real Life. Real Life was shortlisted for the Booker Prize and the National Book Critics Circle John Leonard Prize and named a New York Times Book, Reviews, Book Review Editor's Choice and a Science and Literature Selected Title 
by the National Book Foundation. His collection, Filthy Animals, a national bestseller, was awarded the Story Prize and shortlisted for the Dylan Thomas Prize. He is the 2022-2023 Mary Ellen von der Heiden Fellow at the Dorothy and Lewis B. Coleman Center for Scholars and Writers. Trevor Cribben Merrill is the author of Minor Indignities, published in 2020, a novel which has been enthusiastically received and reviewed in various publications, including Lingua Romana, The American Mind, St. Austin Review, and Front Porch Republic. He is also the author of the literary monograph, The Book of Imitation and Desire, and an essay, The Situation of the Catholic Novelist, published in 2021. He has edited, published, and translated books, articles, speeches, and interviews by and about René Girard. His essays and book reviews have appeared in First Things, The University Bookman, Dapple Things, among other venues. Um, so welcome to the panelists here. Uh, so we wanted to kind of maybe uh, see I think we might have a bit of a mixed audience. I'm not sure in terms of, in terms of previous knowledge about Girard. So how many people have uh, never heard of Girard, don't know anything about mimetic desire at all? Okay. You've come to the right place. Okay. <laughs> okay. So they, the, my fellow panelists here have tasked me with, with having to explain uh, Girard uh, in front of a room full of Girardians uh, in about two minutes to explain Deceit, Desire, and the novel. So I don't know if I can do it. But uh, just to give you a quick prestige, this is an early work from Girard, a, a work that is, uh, I would say, his most literary, critically focused work in, in uh, distinction from some of the, the later work, which is more anthropological and theological in orientation. Uh, it, it is a work of comparative literary criticism where he reviews the novels of and examines the novels of Stendhal, Flaubert, Cervantes, Dostoevsky, and uh, examines them to, uh, to attempt to uh, unveil the, the, the structure of desire found in the works, which he sees as fundamental to the structure of desire as, as it actually exists in the world. And I think the, the, uh, the main wrinkle here is that while we might think that we desire uh, the objects that we desire simply because we spontaneously desire them autonomously, that in fact we, we desire those objects because other people desire those objects. And so our desires are mediated uh, through others. Um, uh, so I would say that's kind of the main thesis. There's a, there's a lot more to it than that in terms of complexity, but that's, that's the gist, I think, of the nuance of his simple yet elegant thesis here about desire. So with that in mind, uh, why, why don't we go ahead then and, and move to our panelists, and we can go uh, in the order uh, uh, listed there. So. Um, Brandon, perhaps you, you could speak um, uh, about your work, first of all, 
uh, how you came to Rene Girard, how it has influenced your work, and just your relationship to, to Girard. Sure, sure. Well, hello, everyone. I'm happy to be here. I think this is my first conference as like a, as like a writer. So I'm, I'm thrilled to, I, I, in another life, I was a scientist. And I, of course, did a lot of conferences in that context. But this is so much more chill. <laughs> and everyone's like so much better dressed here. I really, I really love it. Um, so I came to Girard rather late and rather recently. And uh, and largely because of Luke, I had been writing all of this criticism, trying to understand why so many people were demanding that I, that I source the things that I was sharing so that they could imitate me. And I kept thinking, why are you trying to make me exert mimetic thrall on you? I don't understand this. And Luke slid into my DMs and he's like, I've got a guy for you to read. Um, and, and from there I was like, oh yes, this will save me so much time of theorizing because Gerard has already theorized all of these, these things that I'm, that I'm working on. And then I read Desire, Deceit, Deceit, Desire in the novel and realized that I, my fiction all along without knowing it had been very much sort of exploring these themes of mimesis and desire. And so my first book, Real Life, is a novel set in a college town in Madison, Wisconsin, a, a town on three lakes. And it opens with a, with a character named Wallace whose father has just died. And he's undergoing quite a lot of uh, frustration and pressure because he feels that he, he can't tell people that his father has died because he knows that if he does, that they will expect him to behave a certain way in his grief and to sort of operate in a certain way in his grief. And he feels that the scripts that he has been given by society for how grief is performed, he doesn't have access to them. He doesn't know how to, how to express grief for a father who was really cruel to him and who was really abusive to him. And that novel really came out of my own experience where I was a graduate student in biochemistry and my mother passed away. Um, and all of my friends were like, oh, you must, have, you must be so devastated. It must be so, so difficult. And I was like, well, no, I mean, she was really awful to me. And my grief is so complicated. And the novel came out of my frustration with what felt like the, the complexity of my lived reality. and. The, the narrowness of the narratives that I was being given to sort of fit those complicated feelings into. And having no recourse to people around me, I, I did what I think many writers do, which is to turn to the page to try to hash out some of these ideas. And what followed was a series of, of books, really, that orbit this idea of living in a contemporary world that is so much powered by mediated realities and trying to find a way through that as as a person with one's own subjective experience and to preserve the, the singleness of one's own subjectivity, really, in a world that's like increasingly trying to get you to, to cater to what it wants from you and what it wants you to do and how it wants you to behave. And I feel like my work has gotten increasingly what people, the most common adjective from critics and reviewers is bleak. It, and they're like, it seems like this young man doesn't believe in free will. And I'm kind of like, well, neither did the naturalists of the 19th century. It's all rather sad and determinist to me, um, I'm afraid. And, 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 I, you know, and so there was this really bleak period in my work, although I do find that in my, the work I'm working on now, I'm trying to, trying to figure out what comes after this knowledge. Once you glimpse the horrifying truth of the mimetic dragon, like what do, how do you put... How do you find meaning in a society that feels so bereft of its capacity to signify? Um, and I feel like that's where I am now. I feel rather 
<laughs> I feel rather lost in the desert looking for, looking for meaning. Of course. Hi, thanks to everyone for being here. I'm delighted to see you all today. Um, I came to Girard also relatively recently and also uh, indirectly through Luke. My novel, The Portrait of Amir, was published the same day as Luke's book, Wanting. And a beauty editor at Covature actually had been uh, given both of our books to review and she made the connection that between wanting and uh, portrait. And she put us in touch with each other. We read each other's books. We were like DMing each other while we're reading. Our minds are exploding because like uh, the, every um, you know, Girardian principle that I'm reading about in wanting is, you know, it, it, it's not new to me in the sense that uh, I had never heard of or, or felt these things because, I mean, I, I think that Girard's insight and deceit desire in the novel, the connection between great literature and that the great novelists reveal the imitative nature of desire is something that I had clearly already discovered, but wanting and then deceit desire in the novel after it gave me a new vocabulary to discuss all of the you know insights that my mind was on fire with and um, and that you know bred my first novel being a, a reinvention of the myth of Narcissus, which um, you know you, you already you probably your mind is conjured with mimetic images of you know people gazing into their own reflection. So many my my novels full of echoes and doubles and um, and uh, while I was only really um, intimately acquainted with Flaubert of the novels that Girard um, discusses, I had been very deeply studying um, Anna Karenina and Middlemarch and The Portrait of a Lady and um, Edith Wharton's Ove and uh, for a long, long time Jane Austen. And I think that Girard could have equally written the same novel with, in my mind, the greatest um, uh, novelist in, in English as, as in French. So the, the, uh, the Austrian theologian Wolfgang Palaver, who wrote uh, a very good introduction to René Girard's work and who knew René quite well, uh, told me that at the end of his life, uh, René was reading Jane Austen. Mm -hmm. um, so, but I don't know which novels. Uh, so, so it's interesting that I think there's this dichotomy between writers who come to Girard belatedly after writing their books, and then, as both of you did, they discover that there's some deep affinity between what they're doing and what Girard is, is observing. And then writers like, like me, who come to Girard first, uh, have already having the desire to write a novel, but not yet having been able to do that. And this is, this is a, a dilemma that the Franco-Czech novelist Milan Kundera talked about. He had a radio conversation with Girard in 1989, and he said something in that conversation that I think is incredibly striking. 
he said that had he read Deceit, Desire, in the novel before he read his first shorts, before he wrote his first short stories, he would have had writer's block mm -hmm. because he would have had the sense that he was just illustrating what Gerard mm -hmm. had said. And so he said that he had had the double pleasure of reading Gerard and of reading him too late. So, but what was a hypothetical near miss for Kundera was sort of this terrible reality that I experienced uh, because I moved to Paris after college in order to try to write a novel. And I was reading Milan Kundera's essay, Testaments Betrayed. And there's a footnote in that essay in which Kundera says, René Girard's Deceit Desire in the Novel is the best essay I've ever read on the art of the novel. And so I went to the bookstore La Une on the Boulevard Saint-Germain, and I bought this book, and I read it, and I was completely subjugated by it. I thought, this is, uh, this is just, this Gerard has my number. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And so then the question was, what do you do now? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Can you tell us? <laughs> I would like to know. Well, it, it was a terrible struggle. I mean, really, in a way. So what, it, what, what, what really, I think what it, the problem that it introduced for me was the relationship between ideas and story mm. in a work of fiction. And I think that the, the, the difficulty is that to write a good work of fiction, you obviously can't write something didactic. You can't have an idea that's sort of floating up in the air above your story material and then try to sort of mold the story to the idea. There has to be an intrinsic relationship rather than an extrinsic one between the idea and the story. And it was just, uh, you know, I think there's something like my, my uh, I studied a lot of literary theory in college and there's a kind of, there's just kind of like mental predisposition to, to like, wanting control over stories by knowing in advance what they mean and, and not being able to go into the story and sort of work through it towards the insight, but to have the insight first. And I think it just took a long, long time to figure out that um, there are insights that can only be reached by passing through human situations. I'm going to be in the um, minority, I think, here and say that I found reading Deceit desire in the novel to make it easier for me to write fiction. My, my second novel in progress has been less painful, more fun, more delightful than the first one, which felt, you know, wonderful, but also just very scary, very labored. And I think that's part of that is the being able to put a name on mimetic desire um, not just in literature, but as a contemporary novelist, because it is such a competitive um, field and such a, a you know filled with so many egos and um, and challenges of you know who gets what review and all, all that sort of thing. Being having the um, understanding of mimetic desire has very much allowed me to move away from caring so much about that and back to what I really love most, the, the part that I wanted to do from the beginning, from the time I was a little girl, which is to read the m most amazing books I can find. So I know now that like part of what, what I was doing right the first time was I had the right mimetic models. Tolstoy and Eliot and um, James were the right mimetic models for me, but then also that 
like the process, it just has helped me fall in love with the process and, and brought me back to um, a point of novels. I think we forget that novels are entertainment. Like there's this false pressure on contemporary novels to be important and didactic and show the suffering of the world. But like novels can, can and should be fun. And I love humor in novels. And um, so it's helped me, is all I'll, I'll say. Mm-hmm. Well, on the note of humor, um, I, 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 I think all three of your books have humor and satire in various ways in manifesting and in your work, Brandon, and in your various books. And so I was just wondering on the note of bleakness Mm. and sort of, you know, what might Girard uh, mean for us in terms of revelations? Is it all uh, bleakness or is there an aspect of Girard that might be that might be able to open up some hope for us? Mm. Um, And I'm thinking also about his notion of novelistic con- conclusions and, and conversions and the idea whether or not we take that in terms of transcendence or we take that in terms of just um, a deeper understanding of the other side of mimetic rivalry, which is, at least as it manifests in, in Deceit, Desire, and the novel, the, the idea of the possibility of renunciation mm-hmm of metaphysical desire and so forth. So it, I'm just wondering if there's a sort of upside uh, uh, to engagement with Girard. <laughs> um, well, I think, I mean, it's not all dire. It's not all dour. Um, because when I, when I read, for example, when I read Deceit, Desire in the novel, I, I feel, I don't, it doesn't feel bleak to me. It feels like, um, like someone is putting a name to this deep force that is moving through the universe and is like moving through the, the social situation, and there's a great pleasure in that. And then there's just like the the sort of pleasures of, well, I only know him in translation. Uh, the the pleasures of the ter- the turns of his mind, and so for me, the pleasure that I I guess that I am trying to recreate in my own work is just the pleasure of reading a work that puts you in direct contact with another mind at work on some sort of question, some, some question as to how we all fit together. It was D.H. Lawrence who said that the novel is the, the greatest, what is it, the greatest tool for the conveying of the subtle interrelatedness of things. And I feel, I feel that, that that is true of novels and it is also true of Girard in that he is being truthful about our relation to one another and our relation to the works that we read and our relation to our innermost selves even. And so for me, that, that revelation of that relation to the innermost self and of the innermost self to the exterior world and all of this stuff, I do find, if not hope in it, a lot of peace in it. And I find that really beautiful. And it's just that other people don't share my, <laughs> they don't share my, my uh, perhaps too astringent uh, sense of delight and pleasure. Um, and so for me, I, I do find in my own work, now I'm, I'm trying to sort of get beyond just the, the sort of being able to describe the mimetic rivalry, for example, among a group of MFA students in the Midwest. I feel that I've been in this descriptive phase for a very long time of like trying to capture these rivalries and these dynamics and what I want to do is to 
to find some form of transcendence and to ask what does transcendence look like in a sort of arid secular world? I don't know. I have no idea. And I'm trying to find that in my work. And it's just that it's very, very hard. And it's going very, very slow. And hopefully, I get to some answer soon. Because otherwise, I'm just going to have to find a new hobby. <laughs> And of course, humor comes in there as well. Like that, I'm always cracking myself up when I'm writing. Um, I am having a, I am having a ball. I, I think it's the funniest thing in the world. And like, I think Dostoevsky is really funny. Um, but when people read my work, I think that it's, and it's the same thing that some people come to Girard and they're like, oh, this is harrowing and horrible. I never want to know anything else about this. And I think anyone who's ever revealed to someone the mimetic nature of their desire toward you. Like knows this thing of like, how dare you? How how could you say this to me? My feelings toward you are so pure. What do you mean? I'm just doing it because 500 other people like the same tweet. Like, oh my God, how can you do this? Like, there is a sense of like, when you reveal to someone the truth as you see it about the mimetic nature of desire in life, there can be this like very brutal backlash. And so I think when people are calling my work bleak. Um, they are responding to a, to a revelation of the mimetic nature of uh, our relation to each other. So in uh, probably 2006, uh, I was at a seminar with Rene Girard at Stanford, and I reminded him of the conversation that he'd had with Kundera in 1989. And he laughed and he said, yes, the mimetic theory exists to prevent people from writing novels. So real. So, but at the time, what I didn't suspect was how personal a remark that was. A biography of Girard has just been published in French, and it reveals that between, like in the 50s, like from 1950 to 1956, Girard was working on a campus novel <laughs> set in the fictional town of Bloomingdale. <laughs> uh, and yeah, so, so you know, Is I really want to see this manuscript. Um, I don't know. I haven't seen the manuscript. I think we got to hit the archives. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's time. But uh, let's but, ride. <laughs> but I mean, but there's this. I mean, there's so many writers who have sort of been in this weird. Like, mm -hmm. so Christopher Shin, the playwright who teaches at the New School, he's, he teaches Gerard to his playwriting students in the New School. Then Elif Batuman says, if novels are about what Gerard says they're about, their production should cease. Mathias Senar said, just after winning the Prix Goncourt, he said, when I first discovered Deceit Desire in the novel, I thought it was like the ultimate creative writing manual. It was just going to let me like reverse engineer Proustian and Dostoevsky and novels. But then later he realized that that was not going to work. So there's this weird ambivalence. But I, but I think like, you know, after what you, what you said, I was thinking about like, what are the things that Gerard did teach me? He taught me so much. You know, so, yeah. yeah. But this is this is what I mean by a vocabulary. I, I don't I, tell me how for, for you in particular, since you, Brandon, discovered Girard after, you, you know, you had had published um, novel more, more than when, how, where in the so uh, like, this was like 2021 or so. OK, I was writing a lot of angry substacks about why people were copying me so much. And Luke's like, I know I know the guy. I know the cause. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and he was right. He did. He did know the guy and know the cause. Um, yeah, so it was 2020, 2021 is when I found. And so I'd published two books then. Okay, okay. So um, I can't remember where I was going with that. But the, go ahead. 
Well, I, well, but I was just I, that was we about, about vocabulary. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Well. Yeah. I. I it doesn't feel new, right? Mm -hmm. Like I don't see the, the like the before after that. Kundera, I could see how that might be a thing if you hadn't already discovered it. But so many, if this is. Girard is revolutionary in my mind because of the precision with which he has described mechanics that many, many writers of fiction have independently discovered and, um, or, or dependently on one another, discovered in fiction. It's an enormous achievement, but again, it doesn't, I d the, the illumination was a way to talk about something I already knew rather than, um, Rather than feeling like I was, you know, being being told something that in and of itself was new, and I think that that plays into the idea of whether um, whether deceit, desire in the novel is a writer's block or a you know guide to writing um, writing a book. To me, it feels very much like a guide because it's it's many. It, it felt like I was reading my own mind read back to me in like much much, much um, more fancy mm. and you know, salient, perfect. Somewhat arcane. Somewhat arcane, yeah. but like also right on. Mm -hmm. Also just, you know, so, so the precision of it is, you know, is much more precise in the nonfiction than it is, um, than, you know, there's a, there's a little mask with fiction, mm. um, even when the mask is helping to illuminate Truth. Yeah. I mean, but isn't the problem that you know if you're going to write a book and really delight in the process of writing, you have to surprise yourself to some degree. I mean, I remember yeah. writing, uh, you know, reading Deceit, Desire, and the Novel, and just realizing, oh, okay, mimetic desire. So everything that I just experienced in my four years of college is the stuff that novels are made of. Well, that's great. But now, if I sit down and write the story of what happened with my college roommate and my girlfriend, um, you know, I know in advance what I'm saying. I, there's no sense of. Yeah the delight of surprising yourself. But I still enjoyed reading it. <laughs> well, but that's not the novel I wrote, you know, in a sense. I mean, it took me a long time to... Yeah. I mean, the college roommate does, sort of. That's true. Are, they are absolutely in a mimetic relationship <laughs> with the college roommate. Yeah. 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 But but I do think that it's this tension between, at least for me, I can't speak for others, but for me it's this tension between, you know, like for me what was so hampering about it and it feels so hampering about it now is that yes it gave me this rich vocabulary to describe a set of like social relations and social interactions and it for me it's just that it is the clarity of his mind he just like shows you down to the bottom of the well and you see where the end point is and I feel like that end point is so for me very distressing <laughs> and I find that it I found that I was so bound, I, I was viewing every relation within a, a story I try to write, I would like see the, the sort of Girardian endpoint of those relationships, and I wouldn't be able to sort of get back to the sort of like mushy, Wartonian, transcendence is possible um, frame of mind I needed to write my fiction, and it was like really alienating and really isolating. And the other part of it for me also is that I, I had this realization because I'd read Desire in the novel, that I was just, in this phase of describing a Girardian condition, and that I wasn't doing what I love in the novels of Henry James, which is that I wasn't reaching beyond the sort of description of the initial condition towards something beyond, towards some human revelation, some sort of like, 
some sort of eruption of surprise, as you say. And, and for me, that's where I, I find myself is in the stasis of I know too much and too little, <laughs> and there's nothing for it but to sort of chip away at the cave wall with my dull spoon until I finally get, get through. It's what? really bleak, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Maybe it's because I haven't bought the very, very bottom of the well. Yeah. I don't know, for those who were, who were at the screening last night, of um, the wonderful Gerard film that uh, Trevor worked on, um, I very much was aligned with like the French TV intellectuals and the Stanford Italian professor who didn't didn't make the leap, the religious leap after the um, literary psychological leap. But so maybe that's why I'm so kind of positive and up. I bought in too hard, too it. fast. I gotta, I gotta unload some <laughs> stock. Gotta sort of find my way back. But I will also say that, like, what, what worked, what's working, I should say, it hasn't worked, but it hasn't sold yet, and I haven't even quite finished it. But like, the novel that I'm working on right now, the narrator is a modern day prophet, a modern day Cassandra, and that's kind of the that that sense of knowing too much is like part of what I'm channeling into the next book. I can I ask a question? I'm curious how then, sort of to talk, I guess, a little more brass tacks about this. When you're sitting down to write a scene or to sort of start your novel, how do you or do you try to suspend these like freestanding frameworks, like the Girardianism or Marxism or whatever your sort of freestanding intellectual or social framework is? How do you suspend that enough to to sort of let the characters be the characters? Because this strikes me as like very much the, um, the tension that was at play with the, the 19th century naturalists. And, yeah. and, and that was often the critique levered at them, right? And was often, it's often one of the critiques levered at so-called propagandist fiction. And sometimes Dickens, low-key sometimes Dickens, that they are these sort of like, that the plots are these elaborate machines that ar arrive out of these pre-constructed social norms, and that the characters are just sort of along for the ride. And so I'm curious how both of you negotiate that when you're sitting down to write, mainly because I'm struggling with this myself. Go first. Yeah, I, I think I think I say that I always say that Flannery O'Connor saved me from Rene Girard. Ooh. Uh, because uh, it was her essays, Mystery and oh, Industry and Manners, yeah. that 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 helped me to understand. I mean, you can talk about it in so many different ways. I mean, you could call it the analogical imagination or the sacramental imagination, or whatever it is. But it's this, it's this. Uh, I mean, to get really technical, you can say that Girard is an example of the univocal imagination at its at its finest. It's uh, it's this it's this thought that has abstracted uh, variable x out of all of these different novels, and then can show you what is similar about all of them. But then, when you descend from that synthesis back down into the concrete world of a scene, and you're about to write, it can be somewhat paralyzing because you're like, okay, well, so now I just you know, do I just illustrate this mm. sort of grand synthesis? But I think the 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 what O'Connor and and she's drawing on this whole tradition of of really Catholic thinkers, but I think it's, you know, it's something that's applicable to the history of the novel uh, as, a, as a whole. What she, sh what she tells you is that you have to pass, it's only angels who can go directly to essence without passing through matter. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to get to essence, you have to pass through matter. 
And you have to, what I love when I read a work of fiction, when I read Proust, and, you know, to get back to the, the, the idea of entertainment and humor, is you have a sense when you're reading Proust, who is one of the great comic novelists, perhaps the greatest, uh, is this tremendous freedom. Uh, you sense that there's no pressure, of uh, uncomfortable pressure yeah. on him uh, from some idea or any sort of constraint. He's, he's going deep into the specifics of a human situation and finding there uh, what he wants to communicate to you, what he finds beautiful and surprising and funny. And I think O'Connor helps me not to capture the, the same degree of freedom that Proust has, but to see how that could be possible. Yeah. Hmm. For me, I'm gonna, my answer here is going to be very art for art's sake. Like in terms of the, like sit, when I sit down, there is a transcendence many not all the time you know you've you're, we're all human we have variable moods right but um the act of writing you said you laugh sometimes when oh, you frequently. i Absolutely. i laugh at myself all the time i like when i write a really amazing paragraph i have cried um <laughs> at my own work and it's like it's so much fun and it's so satisfying and um the like the the thing itself and not not like the not like the completed product but the experience of the thing as it's happening is a sort of the tr it's when i hit on something that is just so beautiful or so true even to me whether or not you know somebody else thinks it is there is there's a you know secular transcendence there in the art in the work and i feel it when i read too you know when you like like when i read about the the best the best passages so like Anna Karenina's suicide right like I that is you know your heart's in your chest like you just you feel it with every fiber in it that it just it, it the thing itself the art itself is um is the experience is is the thing for me yeah. I love that thank you guys for your support I'm gonna I'm gonna remember that <laughs> when I'm sitting down to write um I love that that collection of essays I teach um, na the Nature Name of Fiction mm. from Flannery. It's where she talks about the anagogical imagination. And, um, and I, I pair it with an essay by E.M. Um, e. Forster, who also talks in aspects of a novel about a similar thing, the sort of like life and time, which is narrative that is like ruled exclusively by the sort of like what she calls the sort of base material fact of life. And then he has what he calls like the life and virtue, which is what she likens to the anagogical, which is life live, life sort of apportioned by intensity and apportioned by something that governs, something that governs our, our relation and our feelings that is like outside of just the, the clock that's ticking. Um, and, and it strikes me that, yeah, like the, you need both when you sit down to write. Like there is the sort of like grand exterior sense of all these grand ideas, but when it's time to write a scene, you've got to just like write the scene and not, not think about everybody who's in ninth grade writing their term papers about what you're about to write. Oh, well that, that is, I mean, that is really huge is because when you're thinking about the ninth graders in their term papers, <laughs> your ego is like in cure because you're thinking about something else with your life and an and, and, and interrelation with with someone with something else. That's why, you know, part of the transcendent experience is like getting as far away from your own ego yeah. as humanly possible. And it's like, and that's where some of the transcendence in reading comes to is because you forget about yourself. Something is so exciting and so um, powerful that you're in the story. So you're not you. And that's where a lot, I think a lot of that relief comes from. And that's part of what I love about, um, 
writing fiction and what 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 the articulation of um, Gerard's clarity has given me has has helped me bring pieces of that ego death to the rest of um, the rest of my life. I'm still a giant snob, but I'm like not quite not quite as giant of a snob, and I care less about whether people think I'm a snob and I'm pretentious. They can think that. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, what you say about having fun while you're writing uh, reminds me. I, I, th I think it's Milan Kundera in this very in this very essay, Testaments Betrayed, where he writes admiring of Gerard. He says something about a painting, and it could be by Matisse, it could be by, by Picasso, of somebody eating a watermelon while lying on his back in the grass with his feet in the air. And what he says is that you can tell when you look at this painting that the painter had a wonderful time painting it. And I think there's something about that, you know, when you can tell when you read a novel, when the novelist really enjoyed the process. Oh, yeah. I, think it makes, I think it makes books better in general when you can tell they're enjoying themselves. And specifically, it's not even so much about enjoying themselves, it's about forgetting themselves and how they're going to be received. And what I would say is you can almost just see it more in the opposite because my least favorite contemporary novels are the ones that you transparently can see what the author wants you to think about their politics and their, you know, whatever. Their names. No, I'm not naming names. <laughs> but, but, yeah. <laughs> but thank you. <laughs> you saved me. <laughs> I mean, on that score, that's not my least favorite genre of contemporary novel because those I don't mind. At least those you see the deception coming. The ones I hate are the ones that are like stupid without realizing they're stupid about that particular thing like they think they're doing some sort of like grand sort of like novel exploration and what they're really doing is just like writing the novels from the 1840s that we don't read anymore and it's horrifying <laughs> that's my least favorite genre there are many of them What's on the bestseller list I, I I don't know that's a I'll think about that uh, but uh, now you're now you're making me wonder, but I, but I think but I think you know one of the one of the things if I had to point to something that I think that Gerard has to teach uh, novelists, it's this idea that Natasha and I have kind of had had some words about, which is this idea of the conversion mm -hmm. comes at the end of the novel, and I you know Natasha doesn't quite buy into it, and I think you know my novel doesn't either. Uh, yeah, but you know it, it doesn't have to be inscribed into the end of the novel. But, but I think, you know, this idea that somehow to, it, that Girard, what he did was he studied the genesis of works of fiction, and he compared the, the novelists' early drafts to their masterpieces. And he, he, it was just like pretty clear that in these early drafts, they have this like self-concept that they're using the draft to defend. Mm -hmm. And that in the, in the final, in the masterpiece, they just somehow let go of that. Yeah. I mean, they're just, uh, and, and uh, that's related to the ego death. Insight. Yeah, I think, I think it's a remarkable insight. Yeah, I, I, as you guys know, I'm undergoing this incredibly unwell project of reading all of Emile Zola's Rougon Makar novels. And it's like this 20 novel cycle that's meant to explore the, the role of hereditary, heredity and in, in, in sort of like heredity of like base desires and how it like ruins different segments of like Second Empire of France. And it's true that like the first couple, he's like really all in on his theory of naturalism, 
But by the middle and the, of certainly the last third, all of that has like gone away. And they become these incredibly moving, gorgeous social novels. And it is true that like, yeah, he started with a thesis that he was like trying to defend and it does mar the, those sort of early books. And, and I, I don't know, I was reading, I, was, I think I was reading Money and I think he wrote it toward the end of his life, but it's in the middle of the cycle. And I was like, wow, this book is so much warmer than the, the first 12 or something. And I was like, oh, it's because he was older and he had sort of gro outgrown that framework of his idea. And I think that Flannery O'Connor talks about this too when she's talking about the danger of symbols for the beginning writer. Like you can't start out trying to, to write a symbol because you'll only ever be able to endow it with like your first thought. Like it won't ever sort of be able to attain all the resonances it might have otherwise had had it just emerged from the, from the story itself. And yeah, I, I do think sometimes you've got to subordinate Yes, the ego, but also like we've got to subordinate our, our carefully laid plans. <laughs> I tell that to my students all the time, like write toward the thing that will ruin all of your outlines so that you will surprise yourself because it's in the surprising of yourself that you that you find one, what you're really trying to say, and like two, where you find like your real where the work comes to life, I think. It's where a lot of the delight comes from yes. too, is being being terrified. surprised, <laughs> terrified, like yeah. um, you know, something developing according mm -hmm. and not quite according to your initial plan and learning and learning from yourself and learning from again the, the process I want to make sure we we have some time for questions uh, from the attendees so oh okay. plenty of hands here okay we'll, we'll go to you in the back sir Me? yes okay. yes uh, a quick comment um, I, I too have cried when I've written paragraphs I'm only crying because they don't read the way I want them to mean. <laughs> well, that happens too. <laughs> but, uh, thanks, uh, Trevor. I, I, uh, that about Flannery O'Connor. I think it's a just a, just an observation, maybe to chew on or just or pass or or pun it. But um, but um, so I love Walker Percy. I love Flannery O'Connor. But Flannery's just a better writer, and I think she is because she's faithful to the real, and she really works at it. Percy worked hard too, but he seems like he's trying to. He has an idea and he wants to stuff things into it. Mm. Mm. So that just kind of, mm -hmm. that, that resonated with me. Mm -hmm. And thanks for a great time. I read that thesis. I read that monograph. <laughs> um, thank you, all of you. And Mr. Taylor, um, Peter Thiel's great, but you're why I'm here. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Big so pressure. You can, you can attest to it. I mean, Gerard, and then when I saw you were on, I was like, what? Uh, so thank you so much for making the time to be here. I'm just wondering if, I don't hear you talking about language disrupting that process, language itself, as mm -hmm. you're writing, being what surprises you and leads you in a different direction. Language, for me, language is key, but it's the, I mean, it's the thing I get asked about most, but it's the thing I think about least when I'm writing. I wait until I have a first sentence. And in that first sentence is contained the entire voice of the piece and the whole sensibility of the piece. And once I get that first sentence, I don't even think about it anymore because everything is just sort of like in the key of the... But where does that come from? comes from a lot of waiting and walking around and watching Eric Romare movies. And oh my gosh, you're Yes, I love... Oh, please. Ah, bien sûr, mais ça. J'adore Romare. But yeah, I... And it, it's a lot of waiting around. It's a lot of sort of taking in information and waiting for it to like ferment and 
and waiting for that, the, the voice of the piece to speak. And when it speaks, I know it has spoken and then I can sort of sit down and write it. But I, and once I have it, I don't, I don't try to mess with the voice of the piece too much. And I write it all sort of in one draft and then go back and tinker. But the language comes and the, the language and the idea often come together. So I, yeah, I'm unfortunately waiting on a rock for a long time, sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm curious about desire, uh, not just in terms of the content of a novel, but in terms of its form. Um, it's something that I struggle with sort of, as, a writer, as a sort of novelist theologian, is this question of an erotic compact with the reader. And Stendhal, who I'm thinking of, 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 of the novelist Gerard talks about, like Stendhal like, is like, really flirtatious with his reader, you know, the constant the push, the pull, the desire, sort of tantalized and then fulfilled and certain kinds of consummation being cheap. Um, mm. and certain kinds of consummation being right. And I guess I'm curious, A, how in your own work, the relation, uh, first of all of you, or any of you, uh, the, the compact between the reader and the writer or the narrator, however you want to think about it, uh, is predicated on certain kinds of erotic desire. And is there any kind of moral, or is this a moral tension in fiction itself? Uh, or is this, or should we, should we read this morally, as well as aesthetically? Mm -hmm. ooh, ooh, ooh. I, I can, I can say. I'm not sure whether you'll have to tell me whether or not I was successful at some point. But I was very intentionally approaching the reader from an erotic lens as a meta, metatextual mirror of the narcissist myth and the bid for attention. The goal was for the reader to fall in love with the novel to the level that they would fall in um, and also uh, to forgive themselves for the human foibles that are very you know unattractive in themselves because of to your point on the language right the the language being you know a, a Means of seduction, right? Huge one. Style, baby. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, desire is important. I try to be honest about it, but I think on the moral question, I think more of what D.H. Lawrence said, which is he said that a moral work is a work that preserves the true relation between things. And I think in so much as I'm thinking about morality and the, the sort of power, the dance of power between reader and author, that is where I center most of my, my conundrums. But this is also complicated by the fact that my earliest literary education was romance novels, which is a whole <laughs> other degree of like, like there's titillation involved there and all this other stuff. But I think for me, where I think about desire and power is, yeah, just in how I'm framing the, the relations within the work I'm doing. A short question, but it may, it may be too broad to answer definitively. Um, have you, I, I guess in two parts. One, do you think that there are any forms of desire that Gerard does not address or addresses incorrectly? Mm -hmm. And then two, do you think that um, the modern novelist is, uh, like, like do you think desire is conditioned differently in like contemporary novel novelists versus the classic novelists that Gerard talked about in the essay? Trevor? Well, I'm not an unreconstructed Girardian, but, uh, but I do think that he gets uh, a lot right about desire. I, you know, I, I, yeah, I don't think that I would presume to critique to see desire in the novel on, on those grounds. Uh, it strikes me as right on the money. 
yeah. nails it. It's kind of scary. Yeah, it, <laughs> like it's, it's terrifying. Um, there's a part of me that wishes, I do think that sometimes, at least in, and at least in the sort of early part of Deceit Design, the novel, there's a part of me that feels that he's a little, he's a little ungenerous. Like it's a little, it's a little cynical, just like a smidge. But I also don't know, I don't know that it would be more honest if he were less. <laughs> like I don't, like I, in other words, like I, there's a part of me that wants to believe that there is some sort of form of mimetic desire that sort of escapes his description that is like possible to be good. And but I just don't know that that's actually the case. And as far as the, the contemporary novelist, I don't know that desire itself is different. I think that many of the, many of the words and many of the constructs and many of our, a lot of our approach to it as handed down to us from our Gen X forebears, I, I think a lot of the language around desire is weird right now. And I find that when I'm writing, I'm trying to sort of like cut through a lot of the <laughs> The, 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 the cold ice that we have around desire these days. I, I would add to that, that I think that desire itself is the same. The strictures of society help it manifest differently. And I would argue that the recursive nature of the internet mm -hmm. in particular, and we saw some very, uh, very strong opinions right before us. There was on perfect display, <laughs> right? Um, the, all of the Girardian mechanics that he outlines of desire in Deceit, Desire in the novel are exacerbated and, um, and intensified yeah. in the modern environment. At the same time, I think that other things are de-emphasized. For instance, um, we were talking about this earlier, the, you know, the 19th century novel in many ways was so successful because of you know the the durable permanent pressures on marriage that um, we don't have today, and and that's that's been one of my big novelistic challenges is making things in a world where we have so many choices and so few consequences in you know much of the privileged Western world, um, making things have stakes and have and to make them interesting because uh, uh, there's so much interest comes yeah. from things having stakes. Yeah. I think we have too many words for things. We need a smaller vocabulary <laughs> for things. I have like sort of niche example, but I, I often have this argument with many of my gay friends that like gay art was better before everyone had to come out of the closet because there was subtext. Ooh. And then like if you were to compare like Heartstopper with Brideshead Revisited, like the like those are like they're just like they're just not the same quality, I feel. And I feel that there's something in art that was better before gay men had to come out of the closet. And so I think we have too much language. We have an excess of language sometimes for self and categorization and for desire. And as our sort of, we've gotten ever more nuanced in our ability to describe things, I think some of the explanatory power itself has been diluted. And so as a novelist, I find myself working with somehow dim more but diminished tools how much of that do you think is because like restraint itself is kind of hot? I think it's hot right now because nobody is showing much of it. Um, 
but in the 1950s, I don't think it was so hot. I mean, it's hot to me in 2023 looking at the 1950s, yeah. Speaking of, of restraint and excess, <laughs> we are over time. Oh, sorry. Uh, sorry. But we started it a little late, so I think it's okay. But, I, but, but this was a wonderful conversation. Please join me in.